Hello everyone, my name is Ryan and you're listening to The Vegan Report. If you're vegan for the animals and you care to do more for animal rights, but you're not sure where to start, then this podcast is for you. Every week, let yourself fall in love with passionate animal rights leaders who will inspire you to find your voice, your own special contribution to the animal rights movement, however small or big it is. Today is a very special episode because we are going to talk about discrimination against vegans. And did you know that there was a word for that? It is called vegaphobia, and it is a very important issue to address because a world where vegans are marginalized and excluded is a world where it is much harder to fight for animal rights. In order to shed more light on this problem, I'm excited to announce a partnership with the New York City chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. You see, they are organizing a webinar on Tuesday, October 17. It is called Expanding Vegan Rights, and it will feature vegans from all over the world who are the victim of discrimination and who decided to fight back against this injustice. For the very first time ever, they will meet each other and share stories of what they went through. I invite all of you to register for the webinar, follow the link in the description, and don't miss out on that amazing conversation. So this week and the next, I will be extensively covering this topic. Next Tuesday, I will be joined for an exclusive interview with Astrid. Astrid is a participant of the webinar, and she is in the middle of an epic legal fight against the French Board of Dietitians. Tune in next week for more details. But this week, I'm joined with the organizer of the event. Tamara received her master's degree from New York University and her law degree from the University of Virginia. She has been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, the New York City chapter, for 10 years. She's a chair of the New York City Animal Rights Committee and a member of the Guild's Executive Committee. Tamara has successfully represented animal rescue groups pro bono. As an employment attorney, Tamara champions women in the workplace under Title VII, the Family and Medical Leave Act, and the Age Discrimination in Employment Act. Her special focus is sexual harassment and retaliation claims. Tamara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure. So let me start with this question. Why did you decide to devote your career to fighting discrimination? Well, um, when I was 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, I was the victim of a bully in school. And it wasn't just me who was being victimized. My best friend Dawn was being victimized and my other very good friend Tara. So all three of us were suffering. (laughs) And the bullying was not just ridicule, but it escalated to theft and um, physical, physical intimidation. And it just felt so horrible. It just felt awful. I dreaded every single day, as did my friends. And I decided very early on that it was not something I wanted to tolerate and that when I grew up, I would do something about it. So I did. Amazing. 
and we're happy for that. We're not happy that you had that experience, uh, which I also had. It is horrible, um, and we don't often talk about how um, negatively it impacts even adults. You know, when you grow up, you still have uh, some of that, you know, fear or some of those um, psychological, you know, hurtfulness. It, it still still with you um in some cases yeah 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 absolutely that just that terror that you feel every day you know and and hating school and hating particularly after school because you knew the bully would be waiting for you but in my case i think i was lucky in a way because i i watched how it impacted other people and subsequently found out that the bully herself came from a very troubled background and a troubled home. And so really early on, I got a very broad picture of how violence and the threat of violence and those kind of injustices work. Um, it wasn't just me and and it didn't, it did have its own source. And that source was an older brother who was a drug dealer. So this was a very troubled single parent family. And um, I learned about all of that in its complexity, you know, before, before being a teenager. So, yeah. And did you ever, just by curiosity, did you ever receive apologies from your uh Bully? No, no. Years later, I saw her pushing a stroller. I said, hello. She did a double take. She said, hello. Um, and that was it. That was it. I, you know, I hope she's okay wherever she is. Yes. So how did you find your way to the National Lawyers Guild, uh, the New York City chapter? Uh, why did you decide to start volunteering for the organization and what attracted you to this institution? Wow. Well, okay. Um, I really, um, I really thought that law was a wonderful tool to fight for injustice. Um, I had graduated from a great school, took the bar exam, passed the bar. Um, the bar exam is a three-day examination in New York. It's just Horrific. It's it's two days, and then there's a an additional ethics um, ethics section that you could take previously. But in any event, it's an enormous kind of rite of passage. And having done all of that, and having gotten myself six figures in debt, I was on my way up Broadway to a Toys R Us for to purchase gifts for a baby shower. And apparently, there was a protest going on to the left of me. I was unaware of the protest. I wasn't part of the protest. Um, I had no connection with the protest whatsoever. And um, suddenly there was a loud noise. It was raining. I was carrying my umbrella. I looked to my left and there was a stampede of people running at me. And um, I just kind of froze in the middle of the street and I was arrested. I was arrested because the, chief, uh, the police were chasing all of these protesters who were running away and they had apparently been given multiple warnings to disperse. But of course, I was none the wiser. I wasn't part of the protest. I was going northward. And um, suddenly I found myself in a van with other people who were part of this protest. And I was like, what is happening? Why am I being arrested? Who are you? What were you protesting? <laughs> <laughs> and... and 
it was the worst possible time because, you know, having put in so much time, effort, energy, and money into getting this degree, I was now staring at a character and fitness interview, which is sort of the last, you know, the last box to check before you're sworn in. So I was staring at this character and fitness interview and I had just gotten arrested. I was besides myself, right? And the National Lawyers Guild came in and, you know, they, they, represented me pro bono and my case got dismissed and I went ahead and told my interviewer about it and he was a little nonplussed but I swore that if I became a lawyer I would turn around and volunteer for this organization that had stepped in and helped me in this moment of crisis (laughs) you know and uh, um, I got sworn in and I looked them up and I began to volunteer. And my initial activities within the National Lawyers Guild were as a legal observer. Legal observers are lawyers, law students, paralegals who go to protests and as neutral observers. And they're just watching the police and how the police are handling the protests in the crowd. Um, because we've seen in the past and historically, whenever there are large social justice movements that the police can be unnecessarily brutal against protesters. And so we keep tabs on that um, and we call the police to account if and when that happens. This is a crazy story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You asked. (laughs) I mean, it's also an inspiring one. uh, But what what was uh, the protest about? Turns out that we had just started bombing a you know a Middle Eastern state. I think it was Iraq under under the first President Bush, um, and that's what they were protesting. I distinctly remember two protesters. One was a Columbia professor of Middle Eastern art, and the other was a seventy year old or eighty year old woman who had somehow fallen while people were running away, and she was complaining in the holding cell how much her knee was swelling up. Um, She was an elderly person. And the fact that she had been arrested and was in this holding tank with the other women, we had been segregated from the men. It was just dystopic. I mean, I I had never been arrested, obviously, in my life. And there I was. And it was just a really, I don't know, it was was a bewildering experience. So what is the National Lawyers Guild? Exactly. Why they got interested in your case? Uh, what is their goal? And uh, oh, okay. Well, you know, the National Lawyers Guild began in the 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, and it began as a splinter group from the American Bar Association. And here's why: by the 1930s, there were particular law schools that were accepting women applicants mm-hmm. and that were accepting people of color. So there were African-Americans as well as women who were going to law school and more importantly, graduating from law school. And once graduated, they wanted to join a professional organization that was a national professional organization. And fortunately, there was one, the American Bar Association. But unfortunately, the ABA, American Bar Association, in its infinite wisdom, decided that women and people of color were not qualified to join the National Professional Lawyers Organization? Well, 
Within the ABA, there were progressive white men who had been lawyers who were already members and who were saying, hey, these women are completely qualified, as are these people of color. What is going on here? And there began to be sort of an internal struggle within the American Bar Association, and the leadership would not relent, and the progressives eventually split off and formed the National Lawyers Guild. So that's how the guild started. And of course, the first thing they did was embrace the applicants who were of a different gender and of a different race. So the guild began in the, in the late 30s. It was relatively small, but it really expanded in the 50s and 60s because in the 50s, 60s, and then 70s, we had large social justice movements, first the civil rights movement and subsequently the, subsequently the um, movement against, against Vietnam, the anti-war movement, the war resistors. And many, many, many protests related to both of those social justice movements. And in the course of these protests, lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild were watching an incredible amount of police brutality to sort of suppress these social justice movements. Why was this happening? We had water cannons used against protesters. We had police dogs, you know, let loose on protesters. We had people shot at Kent University. We had all kinds of you know authoritarian repression in a country that prides itself on first amendment rights so as lawyers what were we going to do about this we couldn't just sit back and watch it right and that's how legal observation began we needed to be out there we needed to be able to take the police you know to account because what happens when a policeman beats the heck out of you is six or eight months later, you're in front of a judge and you're saying, yeah, this is what he did. And the judge is saying, did you do that? And the police officer can say, no, I didn't do that. I never saw this man before in my life. And it's the police officer who's going to be believed unless there's an officer of the court who is also present and who also saw it and who has contemporaneous notes. That's what legal observers do. So we stand back from a protest. We're not part of the protest action, but we're watching and we're taking notes. And those notes are contemporaneous to what's happening. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then if we should see police brutality and there is a court case down the road, yeah, we can come in and testify. And we are officers of the court. So our word is going to be taken very, very seriously by the judge. Of course. And that's amazing. Now, the National Lawyers Guild has got, um, became interested in uh, the animal rights movement. And we're getting back to, to this. But first, I'm curious about, you know, you're a vegan. I'm curious about what has been your vegan journey so far. And why did you decide um, to get involved in the space of animal rights? Well, I had been involved, my vegan, like, I don't really have a progressive vegan journey. I hated milk, even as an infant. You know, I, I don't remember six months old, but <clears throat> there are stories how at six months old, I was already rejecting milk and milk byproducts, you know, dairy byproducts. And my grandparents at the time who were caring for me had no idea what to do with this infant who just screamed and maybe I was lactose intolerant. I don't know, but I didn't give up meat until I was 18. And that was because of Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. 
Um, so I don't really have a, you know, classic vegan journey. Um, but my animal rights journey also sort of sporadic. Um, I would go to for free Friday protests after Thanksgiving. I would shout at Macy's for having a fur salon. Um, I hated the fact that animals were, were um, tortured in laboratories. So I was on the very fringe of Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty. Um, so I would go to occasional protests. But contemporaneous with this, I had been an animal rescuer. And I had started rescuing animals in imitation of my dad, who would see an injured bird <clears throat> or a bird that was caught in bad weather and he would bring the bird home and the bird would sort of rest and recuperate in our bathroom free flying until the weather was better or until the bird recuperated and then we would release the bird from the bathroom window it would just kind of leave on its own um obviously some some most of these birds were pigeons some were sparrows a few starlings came through our house if the bird was really in need of, of assistance, we would find an avian vet. There were very few who would want to handle a wild bird. But that all changed with the Wild Bird Fund. God bless them. They are on 565 Columbus Avenue, and they are a free avian hospital. Did I say they were free? They are free. So if you are in New York, and if you spot an injured bird, Please take it to the Wild Bird Fund. They will treat that bird for free and release it in Central Park. And now is an especially sensitive time for birds. Why? Because it's the autumn migration. And thousands of them are hitting the glass of our various skyscrapers and are falling to the ground. And if the glass strike in the fall don't hit them, don't kill them, please put them in a brown paper bag and bring them to the Wild Bird Fund. Um, besides birds, I also rescued cats and the occasional dog. Um, and uh, it was when I rescued my second dog, a pit bull that displayed all kinds of weird behavior. I ended up learning through her um, about dog fighting. I had never in my wildest thought about dog like the people did that but apparently they do um and then i also heard about bully bands laws that say you can't have a certain kind of dog so it was in 2007 when i found honey and could not rehome her and decided to be her companion myself that was when my sustained animal rights effort started. So it had been sporadic previously. Um, the animal rescuing was actually quite uh, consistent, but the animal rights was, especially the protesting, was sporadic until 2007. When I found Honey and when I realized what was happening to Pitbulls especially, and this was thanks to a great friend, John Marr, when I found that out, then I was just like, okay, no, 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 no. We, we don't want this. We don't want particular breeds to be banned just because some individual dogs are, are aggressive. Um, and that was when the sustained effort started.
And what do you say to vegans who want to do more but are on the fence or they don't really know how to engage, how to contribute? What would be your message uh, to those people, to those listeners? Well, I think that everyone can contribute. You mentioned yourself that you're an introvert, but you're contributing in a way that you can and that is comfortable to you. Um, there are millions of examples of how people can get involved or get more involved if they want to. Um, certainly, they can listen into our webinars. We do a free webinar bi-monthly. In October, you mentioned the webinar about vegan discrimination and how vegans are fighting back. But we deep dive different intersections of animal rights and the law about every two months. And I mention that because when vegans become aware of the wide variety of animal rights campaigns that are out there, then they can really hook into something that is particularly important to them. So that's what I would say. Keep exposing yourself to the wide variety of work that's happening and make sure that the work suits your temperament and feeds your passion, um, whether that's a passion for fish or for pit bulls or for laboratory animals or for circus animals. There is, there is space for you and you will be welcome. Keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> Keep listening to this podcast, yes. Okay, so this is a great segue for um, talking about the webinar. The webinar um, is at the intersection of two of your passions uh, for uh, you know, fighting discrimination and fighting for animal rights. Now, how did you, what was, when was the first time you heard about vegans being discriminated against? And, okay, well, I read, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yes, and what was your reaction? Well, I read Jory Kasimichana's success story in 2020. I think it was January. Um, I think I might have read about it the previous month. He was in front of the um, tribunal. And it was amazing that, that, that he won. And I was elated that he won. But subsequently, I discovered that there were some cases in America where the vegans were not so fortunate, like Jerry Friedman's case against uh, Kaiser Permanente. And I also found out that there were cases that were pending. Um, for example, Astrid's case, Astrid Prevost's case in France and Matthias's case in Switzerland. Um, and of course, there's Adam Knopf's case in Canada. So these cases are in different stages. And, you know, as a discrimination attorney, it kind of makes sense because whenever there is a social justice movement, there's going to be pushback. Mm. And now as vegans and vegetarians are coming to be 2%, 3% of the population, in some countries, they're 5% of the population. Um, there is an inevitable pushback. And some of that pushback is just out of ignorance, fear, and of strangeness. Some of that pushback might be quite deliberate by the overwhelmingly wealthy dairy industry and meat industry who are watching milk alternatives 
inch up to seven, eight, and nine percent in various supermarkets, right? And so there are all of these sort of cases throughout Europe about whether or not you can use the name or label milk, whether or not you can use the label butter. Who has exclusive rights to these nouns in the English language? And those are the kinds of um, arguments that are being heard on an industrial level, right? Where you have an industrial giant on the one hand fighting for a monopoly on a particular word. Simultaneously, you have individual discrimination cases that are moving forward because vegans are being discriminated against at work, at school, in divorce proceedings, um, in detention. Well, let's give some concrete examples to to uh, listeners. Sure. Well, all right, I'll start sort of sequentially with the U.S. and Jerry Friedman's case. So Jerry Friedman was at the time a uh computer, um, he was a computer repair person for Kaiser Permanente, which is a very large hospital um, chain. And he was working for a pharmaceutical company repairing their computers, and they were very happy with his work. And they offered him a a full-time permanent position, which he was very happy to accept, um, or as happy as a vegan in a pharmaceutical company could be. Um, But he did accept the position, and then they told him that he um, must be vaccinated um, and take the MMR vaccine. And Jerry said, you know, this vaccine is cultured from chicken embryos, and I don't don't feel comfortable, you know, taking it. Um, Perhaps we can keep me in the computer repair shop away from anyone who might be a patient um, and, you know, accommodate me um, that way. And they said no, and they rescinded the job offer, the full-time job offer, and they stopped using his services as a contractor. Mm -hmm. So they backpedaled quite a bit and he was horrified and he took them to task on it. Jordi Casamitiana's case um, about 20 years later or 18 years later came about because he was working for league against cruel sports. And as an ethical vegan, he was curious as to where his pension fund was going. So pension fund investing in a pension fund became mandatory, I think in 2015 in the UK. So everyone at uh, LACS had a pension fund and he was just curious as to what he was investing in. He found out, much to his horror, that he was investing in tobacco, oil, and big pharma that tested on animals. So he raised this with his managers. They appeared equally horrified. They told him they would change the pension fund, but in fact, they didn't. And despite nudging them for over a year, they didn't. And in the course of that year, he begged them to at least stop investing his own money so that it wasn't like his own pension was contributing to animal testing. It turns out they didn't even do that. So um, he found a mechanism to change his own pension fund to something more ethical. And he changed his own pension fund, his own 
monetary stream to something more ethical. And he told his colleagues at LACS about it and LACS fired him. Astrid, Astrid Prevost is an aspiring dietitian in France. Um, to get her dietitian's license, there was a mandatory cooking class. I don't know why there was a mandatory cooking class, but there was. They insisted that she use animal ingredients. She requested um, to be able to substitute the animal ingredients with vegan alternatives. She even got a doctor's note. They said no, and that she would risk failing the cooking class and thereby not being able to pursue her dietitian's degree unless she used animal products. So there are other kinds of cases as well. Um, there are cases in detention or in hospitals um, where a person in detention is not getting vegan food despite the fact that they are quite clear about what it is they eat. We're hoping that Representative Congressman Ro Khanna opens the webinar. We're waiting for his staff to give us the green light and let us know if he's available for a couple of minutes on October 17th. Congressman Khanna is very involved in making sure that American servicemen and women have plant-based and vegan options and in the military. And so the congressman right. of uh, which state? California. California. Um, yeah. So there are these, you know, so there are these many, many different examples where, where vegans, are, I'll give you a sort of divorce example. Um, imagine if you will, you have two people divorcing. One is not vegan. One is vegan. The not vegan claims that the vegan is jeopardizing the health of their child and should therefore be the parent that gets custody. Now, in some places, they may or may not be laughed at because we know that it's entirely possible to um, have a child that's on a vegan diet and have that child be extremely healthy. But in some places, that's, that's quite a strong argument. And there are some places in the world where to be vegan is to be openly vegan is to be scared of retaliation where vegans are called terrorists. There's a Italian politician who wants vegan parents to go to jail, go to jail, vegan parents to go to jail um, because they're jeopardizing the health of their child. So depending on where you are in the world, your discrimination is going to be different and more or less severe. When I hear about those cases, my blood starts to boil. It's just the feeling of injustice um, is so great. And I want to get back to uh, the, the case of Jerry and also the case of Jordi, who are kind of like the flagships of um, this whole fighting back against discrimination because um, they decided to um, sue their employers. They decided to seek justice. So what happened um, in both their cases? Well, both of these cases, as you rightly point out, are in the employment context. And in Jerry's case, um, he 
argued that his veganism, um, his ethical veganism, should be protected the way any secular but deeply held belief system should be protected. And the American courts that tend to recognize monotheistic religions where there is a central deity, they were uncomfortable um, in recognizing ethical veganism um, as a religion, if you will, quotes around that word religion. The reason was because they indicated that there wasn't an otherworldly element. There didn't seem to be religious holidays. There didn't seem to be any kind of priesthood or clergy. As if those things are all necessary indicators of a deeply held philosophy. And of course, they're not. And examples of religions that are recognized in law, but do not have a central, invisible patriarch are Confucianism and Buddhism. Both of those are recognized religions in the law. You can't discriminate against someone for being Buddhist. Um, and if you can't, and since you can't, why can you discriminate against someone who is an ethical vegan? There's a case from 1965 called U.S. versus Seeger. In that case, you had conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War. Some of those men were, there were three, were atheists. So there was no otherworldly component, there was no clergy, and there were no religious holidays. And yet, the Supreme Court of the United States said, no, these people are deeply convinced that war is an evil, despite being atheists. What's at issue is their conviction. And the military had to accommodate them in non-combat situations, which is the accommodation that they that they had requested. And if I think about uh, the case of Jerry, it reminds me of uh, Jehovah Witnesses who refuse to receive blood, I think, uh, um, if I'm right. But this is this should be considered like we should be considered like the um, Jehovah Witnesses, they, because they're making a judgment on our beliefs. That's the thing. They're, they're saying, okay, this is not valid. This is not comparable to other beliefs. When they should be making a judgment about, um, are we truly holding on those beliefs? Do we truly, um, do we have convictions in, in those uh, principles? It's, I don't know if you also have, you know, noticed that nuance, or maybe I'm, I'm wrong in my in my observation. No, no, you're absolutely right. And fortunately, in Great Britain, that was the major question. You know, the question was how deeply did Jordy believe in ethical veganism, and he submitted over a thousand pages, I think, of evidence and testimony that described his ethical veganism straight down to 
being careful about taking public transportation because it would kill insects along the way, not eating figs because there's a relationship between figs and wasps, I believe. Um, certainly diet, but well beyond diet. Leather, uh, fur products, obviously, down. Jordy's uh, position is one of very deep and thoughtful concern about every living creature. And fortunately, he was able to document that concern and to sway the tribunal in 2020. His lawyer at the time was Peter Daly. Hmm. So together they, they, or I should say his solicitor at the time was Peter Daly. Um, they were successful in, in a way that we in America were not or have yet to be successful. Now, this is America, and you have two guests that um, do not come from America, Adam Knopf and Astrid, uh, Astrid Prevost. Uh, now, this podcast uh, will have Astrid um, on as a guest um, next week. But in the case of Adam, he's Canadian, so we, we shared, I shared that in common with him. C can you talk about his story, what he had to face in, in, in more details, maybe? Well, um, unfortunately, I'm rather gagged at the moment. Um, Adam has decided that given the sensitivity, because mind you, he had his hearing hmm. with Wade Poziamka uh, several Tuesdays ago, and they are awaiting a decision. So Adam has carefully decided not, not to participate in the webinar. And in his stead, we have a gentleman from Switzerland <clears throat> whose uh, name or pseudonym is Matthias, and he will be participating in Adam's stead. And his case is related to an animal rights activist who was detained, who was wiretapped illegally, who ended up in detention before he was convicted And that detention lasted for 11 months, during most of which he ate bread and very few other things yeah, the, because his veganism was not recognized despite multiple appeals to the uh, prison management system. So he is being represented and his case is in Switzerland and potentially will move up to the European uh, Court of Justice. And Because I'm planning... it is such a such a horrible um, transgression of human rights. And I'm planning on uh, talking with Astrid about his case because I think uh, he's an acquaintance of. Okay, uh, yeah, and about Adam, it's interesting because if it was not for you, Tamara, I would not have known about uh, these different cases. Uh, this, these different instances of uh, discrimination against vegans. Why is it the case that it's not more popular even among uh, vegan circles? And why is it important to, to talk about this? Okay, well, litigation, my experience, when I look at my clients who have gone through the litigation process, it's a challenging process. It's 
even if you're completely righteous in your claim, it's just so psychologically difficult to put that in public. To And I think that many people feel awkward about complaining. Many people just wish the problem would go away. Many people will suffer, and I deal and I have for a long time with women who've experienced sexual harassment, many women are just so embarrassed that they don't want to talk about this, much less go to human resources and then point fingers and take notes of various instances, dates and times and specifics. They don't want to tell their boyfriend or husband because they may be concerned that the men who love them will step in and become agitated and that it will make a bad situation worse. Many, many vegans are trying to find alternative means of getting what they want, including declaring themselves to be religions that they're not. Like, I'm Buddhist. Please accommodate my child and don't give them milk <laughs> you know, in the nursery school or at school. Or I'm Buddhist. My child shouldn't have to dissect a frog. Um, so I've heard stories of vegans doing all kinds of contortions just so that they would fit in and make as few waves as possible. And that's why it was very, very hard to find panelists for October 17th's webinar. And that's why the panelists who are coming forward are exceptionally brave and really deserve to be commended because they're the ones that are opening the doors for others. They're the ones that are taking the heat for others. Astrid is not alone in her fight. There are silent people in Poland and Estonia, Lithuania, Belarus, Russia, Croatia, who in hearing her story, if they don't find the courage to equally step up, then at least they will have the sense that they are not alone. There are hundreds of people who feel like they are alone and hated, and they're afraid. There are vegans who have won their court cases, but refuse to speak out, refuse to be named, insist on remaining anonymous, and applaud what we're doing, but cannot raise their voice in their communities. We want to make more and more people vegan. And that way, we want to um, advance the cause of animal rights and stop the exploitation of animals. Now, how can we reach our goal if being vegan is so hard? Uh, it is so, um, you're punished for being vegan in society. And so, yeah, it, it is a big detriment to our uh, fight for animal rights 
It's it's definitely a second wave, meaning the first wave is getting people to be vegan, but there has to be some backup and some support once that happens. You can't just get people to transition and then whoop, great, gone, because it's an ongoing struggle. And I have been reaching out to vegan personalities and asking them what they think about this and can they support this webinar and can they promote this webinar? Can they participate in this webinar from the audience? Because it's lovely that they've helped hundreds if not thousands of people transition. But this is what some of those people are experiencing having transitioned. What do you do now? And you abandoned them. And no, I, you have to step forward. Yes, and I always hear, you know, about people transitioning to a vegan diet, but that is not the key uh, data here. What is the key data is how many people stay vegan after transitioning to veganism. And the studies we have show that not that many people, in fact, the vast majority uh, leave uh, the lifestyle. And I was... Yeah. Yeah, I, I was talking to um, vegan conservatives in one of my uh, uh, past episode, and they were talking about how if there was more um, social uh, support around uh, being vegan, they would have seen more uh, conservatives become vegan. That is the number one thing that stops a lot of conservatives who accept the, the vegan arguments to become vegan. And I think it applies to um, other people from other, from, um, other uh, parts of the political spectrum. But yeah, it is, um, I don't know. Do you want to add something about this? Yes, Earthling Ed, if you're listening to this podcast, you have to reach out and you have to help these people after they've transitioned. My email is Tamara underscore Bedic at yahoo.com. Let me know. <laughs> the fight doesn't stop. The fight does not stop. The more vegans, the more vegan discrimination. Yeah, very true. Very true. And, and, and the trauma, you know, because part of me wants to talk with some of those ex-vegans and understand why they decided to leave um, the lifestyle. Now, I don't know if it is my place to do so. Uh, maybe not, but maybe someone, you know, maybe a listener uh, wants to take that uh, task um, and into their hands um, because we need to understand what is happening and we need to understand what, what kind of trauma, what kind of bad experiences those vegans went through that made them leave the, the lifestyle and um, the, the movement for animal rights. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that um, the rubber really hits the road with diet. Ethical veganism is far, far broader than just diet, but I think that the most that the nexus and the, and the nucleus of that conflict really with one's family, with one's friends, with one's 
with the crumbling social circle, with the inability to fit in, with having to find new friends, with having arguments with your significant other, all that kind of revolves around what's on your plate. Yes, but the, you know, the detail that truly triggers me personally, it's the fact that many of those ex-vegans don't become vegetarian after um, a few months or a few years of being vegan. It's not like they're uh, leaving veganism to become vegetarian. They're leaving everything behind, you know. Right. And, you know, when you asked me earlier, like, how, what was my vegan journey? And I said, well, it's kind of scattered. I stopped eating meat. I mean, I always hated milk. So I, I had my coffee black, sometimes with sugar, sometimes without. But when I stopped eating meat, I was unaware of the term vegetarian. So when people would say, oh, you want to have a hamburger? I'd be like, no, I'm boycotting meat. So in my head, the word was always boycotting meat, boycotting the meat industry. So I didn't, I didn't, I was unaware of the words vegetarian. I certainly was unaware of the word vegan. I just knew on the one hand what I hated and did not want to put it, you know, did not want to drink or have anything to do with. And I also understood that what was happening behind slaughterhouse doors was something that I was not going to invest a penny in. And I was boycotting them for as long as I needed to boycott. I mean, there was never going to be a time that I was going to say, okay, yeah, this is fine. No, it's not all fine. It's not fine. It's never going to be fine. It's never going to be fine. I don't need a label. I don't need to call myself anything. It's never going to be fine. Yes. And yeah, you know, going back to my point, it might be hard to be vegan in terms of dieting, but it is much, much, much easier to be vegetarian. So why do we not have, you know, those ex-vegans becoming just vegetarian or just, you know, saying I'm I'm going to reduce considerably my uh, intake of meat, something like that. Um, anyway, it is, d d you know, doing this podcast, you realize how much work uh, still has to be done uh, in this field. So. Yes. Yes. So what is your goal with this uh, webinar? Uh, we talked about raising awareness. So did you have other goals? Well, for starters, one of the things <clears throat> that concerns me is that we don't, my opinion, is that we don't really have a umbrella animal rights movement. We have a million and one campaigns. We have a campaign to end this, a campaign for this purpose. We care about various different things, and then we sort of silo ourselves into these different areas. And one of the reasons that the webinars keep changing their subject matter so drastically, for example, the last webinar was on ventilation shutdown in America's farms. The next webinar might be about rhinoceros horn these are all very interconnected issues. And if we want to build a movement, we really need to think globally and we need to think about the various campaigns and how to bring people together. So the overarching issue of the entire webinar series, the, the reason that we do these webinars at all is to allow people to see both the diversity and to encourage people to come together under one umbrella. And similarly, 
the people that will be speaking on October 17th, they don't necessarily know each other. Jerry and Jordy just met at a podcast that I organized with Corinne Hardglass. Um, but there's a growing family of vegan, ethical vegan litigants. I want those people to meet each other, have each other's email addresses, talk about how to pay their lawyers, talk about crowdfunding strategies, talk about just talk. They need to connect with each other. And other people need to see them connect. Vegans who are still in the shadows. Yeah. And also, you know, the industry we're going against is well organized. It is global. It is well funded. And they are aware of who, what uh, animal rights activists are doing. And they're doing their best to counter uh, attack our advocacy work. <clears throat> And to shut us down, yeah, and to take down our leadership. For example, right now, the Sonoma trial with uh, DXE. Wayne Shang wasn't even part of the particular rescue that they're prosecuting him for. Why are they prosecuting a man who wasn't on the scene? Because he's a leader, and because if they take him down, and Priya, and other leaders of the DXE movement, and, and by the way, Wayne stepped away from DXE over a year ago. So he's doing something else now. It's called Simple Heart. And they're prosecuting him because they want to tear down a movement, just like they did with the Stop Huntington animal cruelty. I mean, once we become large enough and vocal enough, there's an enormous organized opposition against us. And by the way, the goal is not so much, you know, to destroy that industry, but to really make it our own in a way. And by that, I mean, you know, one of my favorite um, mock uh, cheese brand is Silk. I love them. Their mozzarella, mozzarella uh, cheese is just amazing. Uh, forget about Daya. Um, and Silk is owned by, uh, I think, I think they're called Danone or um but they're this big dairy industry company and I'm glad I'm glad that the animal industry is turning into something more plant-based uh oriented and vegan friendly why not let's convert them to our cause so it doesn't have to be you know antagonistic it's more of like a show of force and an influencing campaign. Do you agree with that? I think it's all about money. And I think that we have a system called capitalism that makes it all about money. So the people who are going to be successful in a system called capitalism are the people that make it all about money. Um, there are ways to oppose what it is that they are doing. And those ways are fairly secondary and tertiary, like protesting outside the slaughterhouse, like voting for politicians who are more sympathetic to animal rights. But ultimately, what's happening behind the slaughterhouse doors is about money. And if you could make it more expensive for them 
to continue as is than to transition, they will continue as is. For example, in this, again, this, this Sonoma trial, they have an army of attorneys prosecuting these DXE rescuers, an army. Each of those attorneys is charging several hundred dollars an hour, some possibly 500, some possibly 700, some possibly $1,000 an hour. It's cheaper for these particular people to pay those attorneys than it is for them to change their way of doing business. And once it becomes clear that their way of doing business is not supported by their shareholders, then they will change. So long as they are making money and so long as they are distributing that money in dividends and so long as shareholders are silent about where their money is coming from and the exploitation that undergirds that money, they will continue on. It's just like a criminal enterprise. Um, a criminal syndicate will trade drugs, illegal arms, tigers, sex workers, children. It, the commodity is just the commodity. But there's a system of trading these items because there's a huge black market demand for all of them. Whether you're a tiger cub or a surface-to-air rocket, I agree. I agree, but I worry that um, it's going to transform into you know the tobacco industry situation, where they still exist, which is crazy. After all that advocacy, after all you know the the health studies out there, we still let them uh, market their product, put it uh, on the shelves. And well, do let's their dirty learn by work. what they did. I mean, look at what they did and how that's affecting the argument around climate change. What tobacco did in the 60s and 70s is they decided that they were going to market doubt. Doubt in the medical studies. Doubt that tobacco and its additives increased the rates of cancer. There's a famous memo about the American tobacco industry deciding that they were going to pay for alternative studies. And they did. And they got alternative science. And climate change is using that same blueprint. And, you know, recently I uh, found out that uh, the tobacco industry one of their headquarters here in Montreal uh, for uh, their Canadian business. And I found out that they were looking for someone in the fundraising world. Um, and I'm a professional fundraiser. And it was interesting because they're looking for someone to distribute grants to uh, small nonprofits uh, in uh, across Quebec and Canada. And also for that person to um, communicate what they're doing, you know, their good work to their employees. So, you know, they have that inner communication going on, which 
makes competition to the messaging outside. So the employees are actually in a echo chamber. They're creating an echo chamber around their employees, talking about tobacco as something good, look at um, all the great stuff, the, the positive impact we're making in the community and things like that. Right. And I guess for an yeah. employee who already feels, you know, a bit maybe marginalized for um, being part of this uh, industry that is recognized, you know, universally as being evil, um, prefers to believe the, the lies that their employers are, are telling than uh, confront the, the truth that is out there. And yeah, it goes back to something I, I said in a past episode. Um, I want to see vegan activists doing some work um, targeting employees of uh, um, uh, slaughterhouses and Tyson and, and, and the big... I'm not talking about the poor <laughs> immigrant employees working as meat packers. I'm talking about the executives, you know, the, the people in the offices who we, we need to reach them to uh, break that echo chamber they're in and show truly demonstrate why we're right and they're wrong in their thinking. So, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, it reminds me very much about who gets caught and who gets the grunt work. We had a webinar on elephant ivory. And for the elephant ivory webinar, we invited prosecutors from six different East African countries to come to the webinar and to talk about their prosecutorial styles and their prosecutorial methods. And of course, there was a lot of overlap between Tanzania and Malawi, South Africa, Uganda, Kenya. There was a lot of overlap because same problem, same mechanisms. However, one of the shared complaints of all of these prosecutors was that they were constantly finding and sentencing and convicting their own people who were carrying a piece of luggage, not knowing what was in it, from point A to point B on their bicycle. And they were earning five bucks or some amount of money that was considerable to a bicycle runner in Uganda and they had no idea that there was a tusk in there. They just knew that they had to take this from point A to point B on their bicycle. That was the person who was getting caught. That was the person who was getting sentenced to six months, for example. The middle level people, and certainly the people who were higher level traders, you never got them mostly because they're offshore. They're not even in Africa. They're in Asia. You can't reach them. So you're prosecuting your own people. You're taking fathers from their kids. You're sentencing them to jail time. And you're never really getting the heads of these syndicates. I'm, I'm thinking now about the, the Sacklers family. I think that's their name. There was a documentary on um, that medication. They they were 
I forget the name. Um, Oxycontin? Oxycontin, yes. And uh, the addictions that it created, how it destroyed so many families across uh, North America, in, in the U.S., of course. And now their name, you know, the uh, Sacklers family, is uh, synonymous with, with that, with the harm they have made uh, on this world. And I want to, to know who are the big families behind the animal industry who are uh, profiting uh, from the exploitation of animals, who have blood money. I mean, it's the definition of uh, blood money. You're profiting from the death of sentient beings. So, yeah, uh, why don't we know the, their, their names? Uh, well, we do in the case of, of, of the animal industry. For example, you had Crystal Heath, um, you interviewed Crystal, and she will be the first to tell you that the very people who are extracting large figures from animal exploitation are investing a fraction of their money in things like conferences for veterinarians, in things like laboratories at vet schools. So... You'll walk into a laboratory as a vet student and you'll see on the wall a plaque that this particular laboratory was paid for by Cargill or was paid for by XYZ, you know, laboratory. Yes. Charles River, right? And these are the folks who are paying for large conference halls where veterinarians can sort of get together and continue to support either explicitly or be complicit with some hideous forms of animal cruelty, like ventilation shutdown in the U.S. Yeah, I think it should become, it should turn into a Sackler's family situation. And hopefully maybe there there will be a documentary produced around, around those people. So Tamara, to before we end this conversation, I would like to ask you, did you have anything more to, to add? No, I think you were very, very thorough. <laughs> but it was lovely chatting with you, and I really appreciate your time today and your patience with my early morning escape artist. I'm referring now to my cat who made it his business to, you know... <laughs> Ruined my Wednesday morning, but fortunately he's he's uh, now satiated and napping contently somewhere as cats will. Well, that's that's life for you. I mean, you you should meet my cat. She's a she's a <laughs> demon. I mean, <laughs> she's old and all, and I love her, but oh my gosh, you need uh, lots of patience with her. And what's her name? Uh, her name is Misha. Misha, excellent. Yeah, yeah, she's a real princess. Uh, so, Tamara, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, having accepted my invitation and uh, for all of your good work. And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me today. Bye now. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Let me remind you that the webinar will be happening on October 17th. There is a link in the description for registration and more details. Thank you to the National Lawyers Guild for hosting the event. As always, 
please tell your friends about the show and why you love it so much. Let's inspire more people to take action. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a good review. And finally, you can always reach out to me on Instagram at Vegan Report Podcast. Thank you again for listening. Take care and see you next Tuesday for an exclusive interview with the brave Astrid.